This is the lack of the peanut power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today, we're going to be doing The Curse, and I will kick us off. So The Curse is the latest show from Nathan Fielder, he who has done Nathan for You, and The Rehearsal, which we've previously covered on the show. In The Curse, he and Emma Stone play a married couple intent on making it big in the world of real estate. They've bought up a bunch of land in Española, New Mexico. On that land, they've constructed a series of passive homes, homes that require very little heating or cooling because they are designed to maintain their internal temperature regardless of the weather. To sell these passive homes, they're creating a television series for HGTV. The business strategy is straightforward. Española is not a very wealthy place, and land there is pretty cheap. By using the TV series to promote the passive home concept, Fielder and Stone hope to build interest in the homes, driving up their value. This will, of course, gentrify the area. It will price poor residents out and force many to move away. But Fielder and Stone aim to prevent this by partnering with businesses to give poor residents higher paying jobs. They are also conscious of the fact that the land they've purchased used to belong to the Pueblo, They try to feature Pueblo art in the show, and they pressure people who purchase the homes to sign a document committing them to support the Pueblo in a land dispute with the government. They're property developers who feel guilty about property development, so they try to persuade themselves and others that they can engage in capitalism ethically through a mix of greenwashing and wokewashing. But they are much better at convincing themselves than they are at convincing other people, and this is what makes the show funny. At many points, it becomes clear that Fielder and Stone genuinely believe they are doing good, but no one else is convinced. Still, because Fielder and Stone have a lot of money and a lot of power, and most of the people they interact with need something from them, direct confrontations are rare. Instead, we see other characters pretending to be persuaded by the ethical capitalism narrative. We can tell that they are pretending but Fielder and Stone swallow these often very poor performances, and this produces an enormous amount of irony. Not only do Fielder and Stone believe the ridiculous things they're telling other people, they are so ready to believe their own narrative that they cannot fathom how anyone else could fail to be convinced by it. As we challenge ideology, it has a destabilizing effect on our worldview. Emma Stone is the daughter of slumlords, When she discovered that her parents exploit poor people for money, that her life and her world have been produced through a sinister process of capital accumulation, Stone developed self-hatred. The only escape from this self-hatred is another form of ideology. While her parents believe that it's okay for them to exploit poor people because they are hard workers, Stone needs additional rationalizations to engage in the same core behavior. She also needs a partner who worships her and will swallow her narratives no matter how ridiculous they might be, and she finds that in Fielder. Fielder wants to be a good person. He's intelligent, but he lacks social awareness. He knows he's inattentive to people's feelings, that he's a low-empathy guy. He seeks redemption for these flaws through his relationship with Stone. If she is good and he serves her, then he is good, even though he himself has no real grasp of what it means to be good. She is his master because he does not trust himself enough to make his own judgments. In this way, Fielder and Stone reassure each other that they are good. 
They help each other maintain the ideological cocoon that protects both of them from having to confront their positions in capitalism directly. There are all sorts of people who find their shtick annoying, but I'll focus on Benny Safdie's character, who serves as the director of the HGTV show. The director lost his wife in a drunk driving accident. He was the one drunk behind the wheel. Everyone blames him for what happened, and he blames himself for what happened. He knows everyone blames him. He cannot conceal the character of the situation, and he is self-aware enough to know that he cannot conceal it. So he doesn't try. On the contrary, the director is at times emboldened by all this. He is sometimes a bit of a jerk because he knows there's no point trying to be anything else. No one will believe him. Even he will not believe himself. For the director, Fielder and Stone are annoying, not because they are good, but because they think they are good. They get to live in this ideological fantasy that he is unable to construct for himself, and he envies them for it. He sets about trying to create conflict within their relationship. He wants them to be just as unhappy as he is, but he cloaks this viciousness in a desire to film something true, something that shows the world who they really are. Of course, the network executives won't allow him to include this kind of material in the show, but that isn't really the director's concern. He only pretends to want the conflict for the show. Really, he wants the conflict so that he can alleviate his own sense of moral inferiority. Over the course of the show, the director finds his ideology in the unmasking of Fielder and Stones. He is able to convince himself and even Fielder and Stone that he is trying to make a good show when in fact he is trying to create misery and suffering. But even when he succeeds at pulling Fielder and Stone apart, he underestimates the lengths to which Fielder will go to maintain the relationship. Fielder knows that without Stone, his ideology collapses, and so he will debase himself to keep her around. Even when the director gets Stone to film scenes in which she speaks of Fielder contemptuously, even when Fielder is himself compelled to watch these scenes, his commitment to Stone only becomes more total. He promises that he will anticipate her desires without her having to express them. If she truly doesn't want to be with him, he will sense it and he will disappear. In the final episode, Fielder gives away a house to a poor family. It is clearly a bad financial decision, but Fielder is desperate to maintain the cocoon. I viewed this gesture as a kind of sacrifice. Fielder gives up the house not to benefit the poor family, but to win the favor of Stone, who is for him a goddess. She pretends to be pleased, but by actually giving away property in a financially irresponsible way, Fielder has only succeeded in illustrating for Stone the impossibility of ethical capitalism. She no longer believes in her own narrative, and so Fielder's continued belief in the narrative rubs in the reality that it is not convincing anymore. If Fielder cannot contribute to her delusions, if he will in fact destroy the business by throwing homes away, reminding her that nothing she does will ever be good enough to redeem the business of property development, then he does not really serve a purpose. She no longer wants him around, though she does not say it out loud. Nevertheless, on some level, he knows. His body is launched into space as her rejection of him produces his total annihilation. This last sequence is very long, it begins with Fielder stuck on the ceiling of their passive home. When he attempts to leave the house, he shoots up into the sky. He manages to grab onto a tree, but when the fire department arrives, they think he's crazy. They cut his branch loose, expecting him to fall to the ground, but he shoots off into space instead. 
I have some friends who find the tone shift too strong, who find the resolution too ridiculous. They'd prefer a more grounded resolution rooted in the previous events of the show. They have a point, but personally, the ending doesn't particularly bother me. There is no satisfying way of coming face to face with the real. At best, it is the beginning of a long struggle for meaning in a world that is often inhospitable to us and our values. And yet television shows must end somehow. The curse is determined not to end with a return to ideology, and yet it must end. Flinging Nathan Fielder into space is not a great ending, but it is an ending that, in my view, doesn't undermine the show's more fundamental points. Nathan Fielder shows are about the journey, not the destination. But I'm interested to hear what Nina thought of the ending. Should Fielder have found a lost object? Or is its dissatisfying, absurd character itself an important way of developing the show's themes? Well, that was very good, Benjamin. You made me think a lot. I I think you understood the Dougie character better than I did, actually, because I wasn't I wasn't kind of sure exactly his motives for what he was doing. I thought he was just kind of um, a bit of a weird jerk or whatever, and clearly very not not able to cope with with the horrible thing that he that he'd done um, in relation to his wife. But I think your explanation about envy and and so on actually is very convincing. So I uh, yeah appreciate you um, yeah expanding my my thoughts about the show. I, I'll come to your question at the end of my little thing, I think, because, yeah, I mean, first of all, I just wanted to say how, how very unusual this show is. I mean, I love Nathan Fielder. I thought the um, the rehearsal was one of the most extraordinary and audacious things I've ever seen. Um, and he's always playing in this fine line between kind of reality and fiction and, you know, the, the whole... Um, how we portray ourselves as well. Like this is a central feature of this show as well, which is obviously a fictional script, but the question of reality TV and also the way they are documenting themselves. So there's, you know, it's very excruciating much. I have to stress how painful it is to watch this show. Like it's deeply weird. There are lots of scenes that don't seem to, you know, add much to the narrative, but are just kind of there. It's very surreal, not just the end. The very idea of the curse is sort of there and not there. It's it's based on the action of this young girl who lives in the house that he eventually gives away. And Nathan Fielder's character is completely uh, obsessed with the idea that there is a curse in some ways. But the, the thing about a curse, of course, you don't know. <laughs> You never know what is being caused by a curse or whether curses actually do anything at all. So it's kind of this deep uncertainty. Um, the, you know, Emma Stone is marvellous actress. She's really fantastic. I went to see Poor Things the other day. I don't know if you've seen this yet. Um, it's a bit steampunk. I mean, it's a bit silly from my point of view, but she is incredible. She's the main you know, character and, and she's just stunning and everything. And she's really good in this. She actually really pins down all the things you're saying, this kind of excruciating attempt to sort of delude herself that she's different from her parents who are slumlords, her sort of petulant interactions with them. You see a couple of times, they're clearly giving her money. So she's literally accepting their money, which she pretends to herself is a loan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that one day she'll pay it back in order not to be tainted by the by the money. 
Um, there's also the artist figure, this kind of native or indigenous artist who's who makes kind of frankly excruciating work that the Emma Stone character Whitney is always trying to sort of ingratiate herself into the art world and, and to have some relation, a friendship with this woman who clearly can't stand her and thinks she's an idiot. And, you know, at one point, uh, Whitney compels the woman to sort of say something nice about the house. It's sort of against her will for, for the show as a recording. Um, and shortly after this, the the artist gives up being an artist and, and they discuss that in the New York Times, it's reported that she's quit art and, <laughs> and so on. And you could say, well, actually, maybe this is an ethical gesture that the, the the price of being an artist in that world is just too high for for the artist and that she returns to becoming a masseuse and 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 Whitney goes and she's there as the masseuse and it's extremely awkward it's very discomforting all the way through I uh yeah it's filled with sort of how, how to put it just unbearably excruciating interactions, right, between the poor people. I don't know if, is, is Española an actual place? Yes, it is yes. an actual okay. place. Okay, because okay. I wasn't sure if they renamed, like they gave it a fictional name, right? Okay, so it is a real place. Okay, that's interesting. That that makes more sense of what how Nathan Fielder would <laughs> do things, mixing up the reality and blurring the, the lines. Um, yeah, I, I think one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that obviously by the end Whitney is pregnant I mean she's she's having a baby so the the disappearance of the Nathan Fielder character into space also coincides not only with his uselessness but his uselessness um in relation to the child as well like so so it's like the it's like the baby replaces him (laughs) if you see what I mean And, and people have compared the final scene to 2001 you know where you have these sort of epic encounters with mortality it's actually kind of horrible to see Nathan Fielder sort of die in space it's really like I didn't like those scenes at all like I thought they were horrible and just really sad and you know he ends up in this kind of fetal position and you know so I think we also have to see that the baby is the fulfillment really for for Whitney and 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 total confirmation that she no longer needs Nathan Fielder um and, and Nathan Fielder, the, the other sort of thing that he always does is is always undermine himself. So there's a, one of the plot lines is about him having a really small penis, if you recall. And and the sex they have is sort of clearly sort of she's pretending that she's with another man or something. So he's kind of like a cuckold in his own relationship, you know, just to just to reinforce how sort of um, inferior he is in terms of the ending. Um, Adam Lehrer, who's a very interesting critic who writes for Compact, he I saw a tweet by him and we were discussing it a little bit where he was saying that he thought it was really about masculinity and the domination of the the feminine, you know, like that 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 Nathan is, you know, useless like in this world. Um and we have to say like reality TV and social media are in a way quite feminine things you know this constant sort of low level sort of world of appearances you know typically associated with with women and a certain kind of narcissism and they they reenact jokes that they had privately uh, in order to put them on instagram or whatever you know like to re again to excruciating repetition and um again as nathan fielder sort of 
effect that idea of recreating and and repeating um, particular scenes but here it's in the service of this i suppose total image control you know it's like who are these people doing building these passive houses and then you get to see a little bit of the documentary and it's it's just terrible i mean it's just kind of embarrassing you know i i don't know httv and i i don't watch these shows but of course you can imagine exactly this is kind of what they're like right and they are cover stories for these forms of gentrification exploitation and literally everyone is exploited in this in this film really by them um and they can't they can't keep it together long enough um and the gestures that they perform like the other one would be whitney paying for all the jeans that get stolen so she sets up a really inappropriately expensive clothing store in in the espanola shopping mall whatever you call those strip strips and uh inevitably people steal the jeans and in rather than sort of pursuing it she hires a security guard who quits um she just pays for them but it gets kind of completely out of control once people understand that they can just take the jeans for free um <laughs> and it's, it's this is kind of level of unsustainability i suppose that's that's really what's going on here like the houses also don't work the the people they move into the houses make alterations to them that they don't appreciate at all like they take out the cookers they they make them no longer passive houses the idea in any case has been ripped off from a, a earlier architect um <laughs> and you know just everything they do is is kind of wrong or off you know and 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 you know this question of the curse well what 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 can we say the curse is i mean is is the curse like exploitation is it the um you know the fact that they are so delusional in their ideology that they kind of infect everything with this sort of with their awfulness and their discomfort and you know i i suppose it's yeah maybe we could see the ending as this kind of i mean not only the total lack of necessity for the nathan builder character who has indeed devoted his life to this woman and of course emma stone is very beautiful like they're sort of mismatched in a certain way you know nathan builder is very awkward <laughs> and she is very beautiful and but it does set up this dynamic very well like the that he is just this puppy and just becomes more and more obsessive and trying to do things that he that she, he thinks she'll like but he has managed to impregnate her so he has actually given her a baby and she's very happy with the baby at the end you know she seems like this is you were saying about the lost object in a way she's found her object in the baby she doesn't need the male doula she's like no i don't need him she kind of forgets that Nathan Fielder is up, up a tree, stuck up a tree, and at that point, in fact, has has gone into space. Um, could we read it as a sort of triumph of of, of womanhood, as uh, you know, of the lack of necessity for men? Um, I mean, it's one possible way of understanding. This, I mean, this is generally a kind of right-wing talking point about the idea of the longhouse and that we live in a kind of gynocracy and that we're sort of, that the world has become more and more feminized and, and concerned with, yeah, safety and 
images and you know that, that there is maybe no no room anymore for for men even if even ones that are very servile <laughs> i mean i don't know if this is the point that nathan nathan builder is maybe perhaps wanting to make um is certainly interestingly one of the main um conclusions of poor things as well without saying too much about the film but it, it is a very um female <laughs> world that the film ends in um as well so i so i don't know something's going on here in this terms of terms of this comment commentary the uselessness of men that might as well float off into space but what do you think yeah i didn't really see it through a gender lens i saw it more in terms of the fact that that scene is paired with the giving away of the house mm -hmm. the fielder has taken the ideology too seriously to the point at which he has violated it and that that's why he has to be expelled it's that he is he has committed an act which doesn't fit into capitalism he has taken the ethical part and over dominated the capitalism part by giving away the house in a way that is is uh, creates a rupture in the ideology that cannot be fixed and the only way that she can recover from this act is to completely get rid of him and yeah. to then have some other i think the baby is now her new excuse for what she does it's it's for the baby and a lot of people do this when they have kids their participation in capitalism is about making sure their kids are okay or have money or have the things that they need uh, that becomes the replacement for all of that other stuff about greenwashing and woke washing yeah. all of that stuff can be superseded by well i have to do this stuff for my kid yeah absolutely yeah, I mean, I, I, I take your point. I, I like the idea that this creates a rift in space-time or, you know, because it's like the passive house then becomes like this actively malevolent house and then gravity is reversed. So, yeah, I, I can see that there's some tear. I mean, she also has a C-section, so she's literally cut open one quite graphic scene. So there's another tear there. Um yeah, he's broken the logic of capitalism by giving that house away. He's done something that you just don't do. You know, you do all these things to show how green you are and how woke you are. But if you actually give the poor wealth, mm -hmm. if you actually do that, now you've crossed over into something else. Yes. I mean, it's an interesting parallel with uh, Pasolini's theorem, because when the father kind of is altered or transformed or however you want to say by the arrival of the Terence Stamp character, he gives his factory away to the workers. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, this is this thing that you, you, you can't do, right? And he ends up running naked in the desert screaming or, you know, that, yeah. So that's, there is that aspect. Um, yeah, that, that's the madness. Yeah. That's what's totally mad about it. I, I think, uh, you know, in terms of what is the curse, I think that's mm. also an interesting question because the superficial obvious answer is the curse is what the little girl does to Nathan in the first episode where yeah. he tries to give her a hundred bucks for, uh, I, I think she's selling some kind of drink, maybe lemonade or something like mm. that. And, uh, but he tries to do it just for the camera because the director has, has instructed him to do it. And so after he gives her the money and they get the scene, he tries to get the money back which of course is an entirely 
you know, capitalistic way of thinking. <laughs> so he goes from being someone who demands $100 returned from a poor girl mm. who very clearly comes from a poor family, right? To being willing to give the family an entire house. Yeah. So he goes from, if anything, being too capitalist, but Emma Stone likes him better that way because then he is inferior to her. And then you know, he needs to be led to the good by her. So in his moral mm. inferiority, there's something that she likes about him. But once he tries to himself actualize her logic, that reveals that uh, her logic is, is uh, self-contradictory. Yes. I and, mean, I, I agree. And then it, so, it disrupts it. Yeah. I so think that's kind of the journey. The curse is really that they, the only way that these people can can make money is by doing all this horrible stuff. You know, the curse mm. is capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I, yeah, I very much like, like that reading. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously she is uh, not pleased by his gesture, although she tries to sort of hide it a little bit. And then they go and tell the guy that they've given, and he's not really pleased either. Like he's rather indifferent. You know, he's concerned they, that he'll have to pay property taxes that year. He's not prepared to do that. Yeah, yeah. But so nobody plays their role properly. Like this great magnanimous gesture, like it, it just falls really badly flat, you know. And and I suppose you, you imagine that maybe he's moved to make this gesture not only because of his worship of, of Whitney, but, but also perhaps because she is having his child, you know, that, that he sort of takes on this religious aspect of, you know, giving giving things away. You know, some people do this. It's like um, it is an interesting thing. I've I've had these moments too where I've given things away. Like someone on the bus once said that they liked my coat, so I gave it to them, <laughs> <laughs> which is a really strange thing to do, I think. And she was very pleased. Like she gave me what she had, which was like some paperback book or something. So I I could I kind of understand that impulse to you know we've probably all at some point had this impulse to like give everything away maybe have you had this impulse <laughs> give everything away uh, <laughs> I I wouldn't say I've had the impulse to give everything away the, uh, <laughs> okay. no I I wouldn't say that I think another thing that's kind of interesting about it is that. These people were squatters, so they were in the building. Mm. They weren't paying rent. When Nathan Fielder shows up, he represents the threat of their being kicked out of the house for squatting in it. Yeah. And then he represents the threat of their being made to pay rent or being evicted. They would have been perfectly happy living in the house, it being a dump, and nobody charging them anything and nobody bothering them at all. He shows up and is immediately trying to convince them that his showing up is a good thing for them. He tries to improve the house. Mm -hmm. They don't really want him to improve the house. They don't really want him around. The father in the house doesn't like him, is uncomfortable around him, thinks that he is weird with the kids, which he is because he <laughs> thinks that they've cursed him. So he keeps trying to ask them about the curse yeah. in ways that make the kids visibly uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, so in a way, he is continuously trying to make up for what he has done to this family, you know, starting from the very first episode with the money. But mm -hmm. then you know, the fact that they live in a property that he owns, that they've been squatting in it, 
becomes another source of this dynamic. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't thought of that. It's right. If if he hadn't gotten involved, they would have been in a better position. Even though they get the house in the in the end somehow, but uh, yeah, now but they just owe property taxes on something they were previously squatting in and yeah. living in rent free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's true. So I, I agree that the curse, we could see the curse as, as capitalism and, you know, particularly this, um, yeah, like, I don't know, is it rentier capitalism, I guess we would say? Well, they do sell the houses. They are yeah. not typically renting them out. Oh, right, 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 right. So they they are, I mean, what are they? I mean, they're profiteers, right? Like yeah. They, yeah. Property and, developers is what I went with. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but it, yeah, it's it's very interesting that she, they cannot distinguish themselves from differentiate themselves from Whitney's parents. Like they're doing the same thing, and they, in fact, worse actually, because at least if you're a slumlord, I don't know, like nobody's under any illusions, <laughs> right? And and her parents actually live in the the slum, bizarrely, or they or they spend some time there somehow. Oh, they they uh, have to. For legal reasons, they've got to live in one of these apartments, uh, apartment units, so that they can, I think, obtain something from somebody who who stole stuff from the apartment. Oh yes, yes, that was it. I forgot. I think that's why. I, I'm not remembering all the mm. details of it, but they have to be in the apartment. They have to spend a certain amount of time there so that they can claim it as a residence for the purpose of prevailing. And this is all very obviously just trying to squeeze every advantage out of the situation that they can, and they mm. know it. And Emma Stone's character knows it, and she reproaches them for it, and they don't care. No. It doesn't no. bother them at all. They go, well, we did all of this for you, and all of this is you know, what allows you to do what you do. And Emma Stone can't stand this yeah. reality. Yeah, indeed, because she's obviously still completely dependent on them, and she is basically doing exactly what they're doing. Um, and by the end of the show, she's got a kid, so now she has the same reason to do all yeah. of the things that they had in her. Yeah. So the curse is also this generational transmission, really, of wealth, right? Yeah, and of ending up stuck in the same kind of situation, a situation you despise but can't actually avoid. Mm -hmm. She becomes her parents, even though that's the one thing she has been trying to avoid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of a Greek tragic element there. Yeah, that's another kind of curse, isn't it? It's actually very hard to avoid becoming like your parents. The older I get, the more I can see how difficult it is. Even like mannerism and gesture and certain kinds of character pathologies. And Oh, mannerisms. It's impossible to avoid. One's yeah. parents' mannerisms. You can't avoid that. You know, I, I I eat in this really stupid way. I push food around on my plate unthinkingly. And we were with my parents recently. And my I, for the first time, I saw my mother does the same thing. I was like, oh, my goodness, me. Like, I've obviously been mimetically copying her <laughs> for Is years. Is there such a thing as eating in a stupid way? Yes, absolutely. Ask anyone who's had dinner with me. They'll be like, Nina eats in this really stupid way. It's almost like, you know, I'm t- it's, it's almost like I'm looking under my food to see if there's something there. And I don't often notice I'm doing it. It's, it's like unconscious. And someone says, what are you doing? Like, why are you, you know, why are you doing that with your food? And some people find it really irritating. <laughs> really? Yeah. 
I've, I've never even heard of somebody eating in a way that is, <laughs> I is know. I think it's irritating in that sense. I mean, I've heard of people making noise when they eat yeah. or being messy when they eat. Yeah. <laughs> but this sounds like something else. This just sounds like a weird behavior that looks I, strange. Yeah. And I, that I hadn't realized that my mother does, you know, and then you end up like kind of also falling into the same traps of neurosis and the same, you know, kinds of negative affect as well. And mm. it's bizarre. <laughs> like, and you think, well, how, how much free will do I have actually, if I've just basically become my parents? And this is even in your case, it's not as if you do the same things. No. Do. Now, in the case of the Emma Stone character, she is a property developer who owns land. She's really found a way to be as similar to her parents as possible while still claiming to be different. Yeah. No, no, exactly. But yeah, it's this sort of strange things. It's interesting. Um, quite a lot of films like Hereditary obviously try to pick up on this idea of, of inheritance, you know, like inheritance in every sense. <laughs> you know something else that's kind of weird about this? Yeah. Donald Trump, his father was a slumlord, and then he became someone who owned buildings uh, that were high-end, luxury buildings. Mm. There's a little bit of a parallel between the Emma Stone character and Donald Trump. That's Although Donald Trump doesn't, you know, didn't greenwash or wokewash anything. But he did glitz. He did gold wash. He glitz washed yeah. what his father did. Yeah, I mean, I've been to Trump Tower. I had a burger in Trump Tower. It was one of the weirdest experiences ever. It was like, it was basically empty. And he's also someone who did television shows to promote yeah, his yeah, properties. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good thought. Perhaps this is going on here too. Like this is some comment on the 2024 election, maybe. <laughs> well, see, if I really believe that this was the interpretation that we were meant to have, then I wouldn't think the show was nearly as good. If it were just one of those, <laughs> you know, orange man bad shows. No, but, but I wouldn't, then, I wouldn't think much of it. But Emma Stone really wins in the end, you know. So well, Emma Stone does have red hair. <laughs> I think this is this is taking it too far. Or is she, or is she a blonde in this <laughs> in the show? Blonde. I can't remember. She's, she's That's right. She's blonde in the show. Yeah. yeah. And she dresses. So she has a, yeah. a bright color hair, very yeah. distinctive. Interesting. Maybe we should write to Nathan Fielder and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Nathan, we're huge fans of your work. We think you're amazing. Is oh, Emma I would Stone... be embarrassed to ask Nathan Fielder <laughs> if if this is a Trump allegory. I would feel like I was insulting him in some way if I were to ask him such a question. He'd probably invite <laughs> you on to some show where you'd have to repeat the same scene 27 times. Or, you know, I don't know. Uh, he's, he's a very strange character, Nathan Fielder. I mean, like, obviously his whole thing is being strange, right? And he draws attention to his strangeness and obviously this is fictional this is scripted he obviously wrote it with benny safety who plays the dougie character so it's co co-authored um but he he's always playing himself really you know he's not he's not a great well, actor he really. wants us to believe that he's playing himself. well he plays this character <laughs> no, in true. his public appearances so that you will think that he's playing himself 
Right. He actively tries to make you think that he's like the characters that he plays. He may not at all be like those characters. No, you're quite right. I'm being extremely naive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. I mean, probably like Nathan Emma Fielder. Stone yeah. has a husband, but she appeared at events with Nathan Fielder and they acted like they were dating. Oh, really? To promote the show. Oh. They acted like they were you know, potentially in a relationship, but she's married. Right, right, right. And they're not in a relationship. But right. I didn't know that she was married. And for a significant time, there was a picture of them at a baseball game together with her laughing at one of his jokes or something. And I genuinely believed that perhaps they were dating in real life for a <laughs> while. And then I, I realized, wait a minute, Emma Stone is married. <laughs> so that's that's just promotion. They're messing. Uh, I hadn't seen and any there was, for instance, Yeah. There was an episode of Nathan For You about Nathan Fielder going on Jimmy Kimmel and telling a, an anecdote that had been perfectly crafted beforehand to be the perfect ideal anecdote. Mm. Now, Nathan Fielder knows that it's funny because it's ridiculous, the idea that you would overcraft an anecdote. But he pretends that that's what he does. And I'm not sure. I think he may have actually gone on Jimmy Kimmel and done that bit for the show. Right. All of that is, is meant to mess with us and make us confused about no, where no, the it's character true. ends I mean, and where he begins. Yeah, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, probably he's some super slick guy in real life. You know, the real Nathan Fielder. Maybe he has not- to know social norms well enough to be able to make it seem as if he doesn't. That's true. That's true. No, and he's then clearly- hyper, hyper-engineered these conversations. Yes. I mean, not no. in this show because this show is scripted. But yeah, but, in but, the but other the other, no, no, absolutely. Of course, of course, he has. And I, I mean, he he uses these techniques of kind of antagonism and inappropriateness in the other shows to to to, to create visceral responses to him. You know, like he he has to be really cool in real life to be able to do these things. No, it's true. You'd actually have to have an enormous amount of self confidence to be able to be to play a character that's that awkward. I think that's that's right. I mean, it, I don't know. It's, it's a point of comparison. Maybe someone like Larry David, who kind of also sort of plays himself, but not. I don't know. Like, yes, though I think Larry David is is less interested in drawing attention to the degree that he's messing with your mm-hmm, yeah. understanding of reality. Larry David just plays an exaggerated version of himself on television. Yeah, and we all know that it's exaggerated, but is in some way based on him. Nathan Fielder actively tries to mislead and misdirect you about the degree to which this is him. Yes. So I guess you're saying also in the promo, he's always in character as well. Like, so he's never not playing. Yes. Character. You never see him not in character. Yeah. Whereas with Larry David, you see him not in character and then he'll do something that reminds you a little bit of the character, but is not nearly as extreme as what the character would do. And you go, Oh, that's a little bit of that character. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have to say that Nathan Fielder is is probably one of the most experimental people making work, don't you think? I mean, like, seriously, like, it's absurdist, it's surreal, it's, you know, insane attention to detail as well, like in the other shows. An enormous amount of irony. Yeah, yeah. uh, A lot of meta jokes, meta commentary, uh, constantly making comments on the form of the television show. For instance, this yeah. bit about the uh, the man who 
you know, 15 women try to win the heart of one man, which is a joke originally from Nathan for you, where he does this show where to ostensibly build his confidence when dealing with women, he creates a reality show, a fake reality show where he can date 15 women. (laughs) Yeah. But of course, the women are on it, not because they want to date him, but because they want to be on TV. Yeah. And this is an obvious uh, mismatch between Nathan Fielder, who's pretending he really is having the experience of dating 15 women, and the women who are, of course, there purely to become famous and to be on television. And Nathan Fielder pretends that he doesn't fully grasp the degree to which this is the case. But of course, he does. He knows that that's what makes it funny. That's why he's done it like that. But they uh, back reference it in this show. Mm. where they do 15 women vying for the heart of one man whose face will be concealed the entire time because actually he's a burn victim. In the show, they pretend that this is something the director has previously worked on, a pilot for something that was never released. Uh, and yeah, the guy wears a mask and it's you know, one of those, it almost looks like a, a cataphract mask, you know, a mask of a you know, Roman cavalryman or something mm. that he wears. So nobody can see, or the mask of a, someone who has a, leprosy might wear to conceal you know, what's what's going on with their face. Uh, and he wear, wears it the whole time. And then they, they, there's a reveal where the mask is removed. And then the women have to decide if they can still like him, given that he has the face of a burn victim. Yeah, it, that's also excruciating. I mean, and, and I mean, this is supposed to be Dougie's idea, right, for the show. But yeah, you're right. I hadn't picked yeah. up on the intra fielder universe uh, self, self-reference. I mean, yeah, this, that's this, a back reference. It absolutely yeah. slayed me. I was I was laughing <laughs> about that scene for days. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this guy is truly extraordinary. We have to say, like, I feel I feel like lucky that we get to see his shows. Do you know what I mean? Like, and the curse is is very very strange. Like, it's really quite experimental. Like, in not just the ending, that the whole thing is, you know, you don't know where it's going. Actually, like a lot of it has these sort of quite slow scenes like that you know don't necessarily like add to the story like the narrative is very disjointed in some ways I, I have heard some people complain about the pacing some people think it's too slow or that his shows in general are a little slow I but i think that yeah. i don't think i don't feel that way about it personally no i i just kind of accept that he's you know, knows what he's doing and everything. Do you know what I mean? And and to watch it with this kind of, yeah. A lot of people, you know, they talk about it like the show is going somewhere else. And they did this during the rehearsal. And I, we also heard a lot of this during the curse. People expecting the show to go somewhere in particular right. in the back half. And I think that that's just not the right way to think about these shows. Yeah. They're, the, the meat of it for Nathan Fielder are, are those awkward, weird moments that don't necessarily add anything to the overall plot that are just weird moments that you can revisit and think about on their own. If they were part of a sketch show, you could think about them on their own and it would be satisfying as nuggets on their own. And the premise of a Nathan Fielder show is really just a way of stringing these things together Mm. in such a way that that you'll you'll go along for the ride. But it's really, it's a ride. You know, if you ride a roller coaster, when you get to the end of the roller coaster, there's no great, wonderful thing that happens. It just, it's done. <laughs> yeah. But the fun was had along the way. And that's an Nathan Fielder show. It's a roller coaster of cringe and irony and weirdness. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, the the doggy character, maybe we should focus on him a little bit because clearly, you know, there there's he's sort of very unlikable in many ways. Like, he's kind of sleazy. He obviously, you know, he's still drinking. He There's a scene in the restaurant where he kind of tries to get the Nathan Fielder character to drink and then but then kind of orders drinks for himself while pretending that he's drinking Coke. And, you know, so he's kind of sneaky. He's not prepared to give up alcohol, which I do understand. <laughs> it is very difficult, um, even though it has caused this terrible situation, you know. Yeah. And he resents then, people for not trusting him uh, yeah. with, the, with driving. Yeah. So he will deliberately put people in situations where they have to ride with him while he's drunk driving. Yeah. In part to get back at them for not wanting to be in the car with him. Right. But there are other very strange scenes with him, right? So that also involve drinking and driving. So at one point he has a breathalyzer. He's on a date, like a Tinder date or something. And he's slightly over and he just stops the car. Right. And this is very strange. And there's also a scene where he wakes up and he's taken the cars of two teenagers. He's in the middle of a forest. Do you remember this one? Oh, yes. There's this weird bit where he's trying to protect local teens from ending up doing what he does or mm. being like him. And he does this by instead of allowing them to drunk drive, he drunk drives their cars. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so he, it's a kind of he is drunk because he wakes up very clearly. Yeah. He's hung over. He is, while drunk, saved these other people from drunk driving. Yeah. So it's a kind of um, compulsion, repetition compulsion, right? So he is repeating the act that caused his wife's death, isn't he? Yes, and then in various ways subverting it or changing it. Yeah, so that would also make sense as a kind of curse as well. Like he's condemned to repeat the same act. and And to be defined by that act. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you would be, like, to be fair, like, (laughs) it's a terrible thing. Right. It's um, and to never get redemption, not even in his own mind. Yes. To never be able to paper over it because of the visceral nature of it. Yes. So, yeah. So I think the curse is also that, isn't it? Like he can't escape. And again, the field of repetition um, thing, like rehearsing. He's rehearsing the the terrible scene. Yeah, he is. He's rehearsing it and imagining what if he did this instead or what if he did that instead. That's right. There is a bit of that. Yeah, so the breathalyzer moment is like what if he had realized he was too drunk to drive? What if he, you know, as a kid had an intervention so that he would never have done it? So he's trying to correct correct his previous life. Like he's trying to say, yeah. Like what you said, <laughs> like, what if I had done this differently? Um, yeah, that makes sense now. I Piecing those scenes together. Um, but he's, he's a strange, he's a very like, what are, we, what are we to make of him? I mean, he obviously is written by the writer, right? So he's, you know, and, and Nathan Builder. He's supposed to be very unlikable. I mean, I don't know. He has no incentive to try because he can't fool anybody. Everybody yeah. knows what he did. He can't fool anybody. He can't even fool himself. So he doesn't make the effort most people make to conceal their jerkishness. Yeah. Yeah, Most people think they can accomplish something by concealing their jerkishness, but he knows he can't, (laughs) so he doesn't bother. And therefore, he comes off as more of a jerk, but he's not really any 
or at least I think this is what he imagines in his mind. He's not a bigger jerk than anybody else. Mm. Uh, he just shows it. But actually, because of this, he has a license to be a jerk, which does over time cause him to be a bigger jerk than other people. Yes. Yes. Um, no, and, and I guess you get this Oedipal insight when Nathan is in the tree while his wife is in hospital having the baby and, and the Dougie character believes it's because he's afraid of fatherhood and taking responsibility, you know, and, and projects his own experience of his father abandoning him or, or so you're let you understand, I think. Um, Similar to what he does with the kids where he projects what happened in his life onto those younger people and assumes that they will do what he did. Mm. Yeah. 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 And there is a moment where he has to confront that this isn't true, that he can't just apply the lessons of his own life to everybody he meets in every situation, uh, which is when it actually is the case that Nathan Fielder flies off into space. Mm. And then he's forced to confront the fact that he didn't listen. And Nathan was telling him, you have to stop them from cutting this branch loose without a net over me to prevent me from flying into space. Mm. And he just acts as if these are the delusional ravings of a man who doesn't want to take responsibility for having a kid because that's what his own father did. And that's his life yeah. experience and that he's teaching Nathan a lesson by having him cut down from the tree. Uh, but he's not doing that. He's actually just condemning Nathan to fly off into space. And a lot of people do this sort of thing where they think that they're helping somebody learn not to repeat their mistakes and yeah. teaching somebody a lot, but they're really just inflicting suffering and making things worse. I, I I have started to think that no one really ever learns anything, you know, like no one ever learns a lesson. I see people doing the same things over and over and over again, and no one ever seems to improve or learn. It's terrible. I think there's certainly less learning than everybody would like to think, both yeah. in terms of particular people and socially at scale. Yeah. No, I, I think, I don't know, human beings are so strange because we have all these kind of optimistic and frankly delusional misplaced ideas about how we can improve our lives or improve ourselves or improve the world, which which we need in a way in order to sustain the, <laughs> the delusion that we can do anything about anything. Because if yeah. we face the world as it is, it's like just you realize how little you can actually do. Well, we think we accomplish something by going, okay, we don't think that there's a lost object that can transform the entire situation and make it all good and all pure, but maybe we can marginally improve things a little bit. Maybe there's something we can do that will help a little bit. And this is a way of trying to moderate the lost object into something that you can, you can swallow, to shrink it into something that you can buy. So even when you think you've overcome this idea, it returns in the form of the gradual reform. Yeah. The gradual reform is the replacement for the revolutionary idea that you've gone, well, of course, that's driven by a delusive thought. But if it's just a little reform, a little, you know, something <laughs> in the margins, well, then it's very reasonable. But very often, that kind of thought is just as crazy as the first thought. Yeah. I mean, then we're back to your thesis in your book, really, about the, in a way, we have to accept the, the uh, rock bottom. <laughs> 
Yes, we have to have the confrontation with the real, which we we try to run away from, both in the form of thinking we can make everything all good and all pure in an instant, and we try to run away from by thinking we can gradually, you know, through the drilling (laughs) of hard boards, you know, like Max Weber says, you know, make things a little better. It's it's not that different, really, from the revolutionary impulse. It's just uh, it includes a pretension that you've somehow thought beyond that first thing. I mean, it's hard enough on a daily basis just to, like, uh, I don't know, eat properly or get out of bed at a reasonable time. I mean, <laughs> like, let alone change the world, you know. It's like I, I sometimes feel it's just very, I don't know, it's very hard to sort of do anything somehow. Like, especially yeah, And yet if nobody engages in this kind of de- delusional behavior, then nothing happens. Right, you know, exactly. Then nothing changes, and then things ossify, and you get all kinds of, of terrible stuff. And so much of what we have in modern life is the product of people behaving totally unreasonably. A yeah. lot of the things that we think are good, like all the machines that we have, come from someone going, I don't want to do this thing yeah. that everybody does. I want my life to be easier in some way. I think that if I had a microwave and food could just be heated at the push of a button, this would miraculously transform and improve everybody's life. Now, it's not true. The microwave didn't miraculously transform or improve everybody's life. I'm not even sure people are even marginally happier because of the microwave in any way, right? But because somebody believed that the microwave would make them happy, it would make other people at least marginally happier, they went to all the trouble of developing it. And yeah. a lot of capitalist innovations are of this nature, where somebody goes to all the trouble of trying to work out how to make some machine because they think the machine will solve some problem, and the machine doesn't really solve any problems. Haven't, uh, and haven't yet, they understood in this, aggregate, yeah. this totally transforms the human condition and creates possibilities that were previously uh, unthinkable for us. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit like the sorcerer's apprentice problem, you know. <laughs> I, I rewatched the clip from Fantasia, you know, where Mickey casts the spell and, and in order to save the work and he, you know, he gets wildly out of control and he creates all these broom machines and, you know, it's, it's very much like this. I mean, this is what people often use this obviously as a metaphor for like, for, for capitalism and so on. But yeah, I think, I think that's, that's right. And then, when people talk about like saving time, it's often like to do what, you know, like, what are you saving time for? <laughs> like, what is it that you want to do? Yeah, you then just end up back in employment because you come up with some other stupid job for people to do. Even when you get rid of the need for them to do the first kind of work, now you come up with another kind of work, which is more alienating or more atomizing or in other ways, more psychologically deadening. Yes. You're like coding, for instance, which is a completely miserable kind of work, but thought to be this wonderful thing compared with working on a factory floor because now you're not moving stuff around. You sit behind a computer and you type stuff in. You know, data entry, you know, these things that nobody had before the computer, but mm. they're also completely soul-crushing forms of labor. Yeah, I've done so many data entry jobs when I was you know, an MA student. I worked part-time and did my MA part-time, and I did these kind of jobs um, through an agency. And yeah, they're like just like they're just horrible and pointless, you know, and you you feel like you're losing brain cells just sort of doing them. Right. We just keep inventing new, more unpleasant ways of, of making people work for their the means of subsistence. Yeah. 
But what would people do if they had, you know, if we if we have fully automated luxury communism, as some on the left yeah. would like to believe? Yeah, no one no one would accept going back to an antique situation where people would all be doing meaningful work either. You know, if there's any disruption to the cost of the luxury consumer goods, everybody freaks out and votes out the government. Nobody will accept going backwards. Mm-hmm. In terms of what, what would people do if we were to, to transition to something else? I think that, that that's the fun question. We don't know. Because we've never been in that situation. We've never seen what people do. Yeah. But, you you know, I mean, when you look at the lives of people who are independently wealthy, for example, so people who don't have to work, they're often quite bad lives. They, they manage to ruin their lives quite spectacularly by getting addicted to things and do you know what I mean? Like it, it seems difficult for people to do nothing or if when they have the opportunity even to live well. Yeah, though I think that there is a sense in which the very, very rich really have to deal with freedom in a way that other people don't and with yeah. its, its challenging character. And I think that there is something uh, especially impressive about really rich people who do find a way to live meaningfully. Yes. Yes, I agree. I mean, I've seen people struggle with this. And and it seems silly to say struggle because obviously the vast majority of people are like, what are you talking about? How can you complain? You don't have to work. But, yeah, but that struggle with ennui, which is so often the topic of rich people culture, is <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, a really interesting struggle. And it's one most of us are denied the opportunity to have and to face. Most of us mm-hmm. get some easy out to avoid it, which is, you know, being subjected to labor in conditions where if you don't do it, you don't eat or you can't uh, stay in your house. People go, oh, what would I do if I didn't have to work for my food? Well, then you'd have to struggle with that problem. And isn't that a more human problem to deal with than the problem of having to work for food? Mm. Isn't there something more, more human about that problem? Yeah. I mean, before I was employed by Compact, which I'm extremely grateful I was basically unemployed for three years and the only money I made was like from online teaching and the odd article. And it was, I was very, very poor. <laughs> like I had to sell things and it was kind of a great experience. And, that, and you know, I had somewhere to live. So that's why I was kind of able to do it. And, but I did kind of go mad. I was like very, very disconnected from the world in many ways. And whilst it was kind of enjoyable and euphoric in some strange way i also really did struggle with uh, a loss of meaning like i didn't know who i was particularly and i think work is gives you this identity you know i mean of course there's terrible jobs that basically erode your identity but like doing something meaningful that you enjoy with people you respect you know it it was very interesting because i had no idea how much my sense of self depended on that. Because the moment I had the job and started working, I felt like so much better about myself. I was like, now I know who I am again. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I think part of the, the contradiction there is you were unemployed during that time. You also didn't have a lot of money. Mm. So you had to think about money a lot. You had to sell things and you had to think yeah. about what things to sell and, and what you were going to do. So you weren't really freed from necessity during that time. If you'd been freed from necessity, if you had a huge pile of money so such that you never had to worry about money, yeah, you might have come up with a role for yourself. I would have probably just taken too many drugs and written bizarre substack poetry. I mean, this is sort of 
this is the person I have to avoid being, actually. Like, I think my default mode is not a particularly good one. Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe you would have gone out into the world and you would have contributed, you know, through charitable works. Maybe you would have uh, you know, become heavily involved in a, a, a civil society organization. Maybe you would have gotten maybe. really into a church or something. Well, there are yeah. things that if you didn't have to think about money and you didn't have to make a plan and you didn't have to solve mm. the problem of not having a job and deal with people saying, "Oh, you don't have a job. What are you doing for money?" Mm. You know, if you didn't have all of that in the background. Mm. I, I think you might have come up with something. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, when I was a student and so on, I did do a lot of charity work. I worked in soup kitchens and for Oxfam. And so, yeah. Because right. when you're a student, you have a license to not yeah, think yeah. about that stuff. Yeah. You're licensed by society to not feel bad about the fact that you don't have an income. Mm. Right? If you're fabulously wealthy, you're also licensed because you have you know, a fabulous pile of money and you can just say to people, well, I have a fabulous pile of money. I don't need to worry about anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's the fact that you were not all the way there that made it so unpleasant. Yeah, I think so. It was the incompleteness of it. It was a contradictory situation. Yeah, and I did periodically panic and try to ask people if I could be put on a contract or, you know, like, because I was so unsure as to where anything was coming from but yeah right it's it's too liminal it doesn't have the security the The security allows you to come up with something cool to do so few people really get that i'd love to find out what more people would do if they had Mm, it's a very good question all right we're at an hour so we're gonna wrap up we're gonna go do the b side for our patreon listeners thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.